If you've got your Bibles with you, it'd be great to uh, pop them back open to that passage that we read from uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're just going to be concentrating our attention there uh, today. Let's pray as we uh, consider God's words together. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we uh, ask now that as we come to listen to your word and as we come to uh, look at this great sermon that Jesus preached, we ask, Lord, that you would give us uh, soft hearts. Lord, we pray uh, that your word would uh, take root in our heart. We thank you, Lord God, that your word is powerful and strong and able to bring life. And so we pray that you would do that for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. going to be fighting a battle, I think, with the wind and my papers. I saw the musicians doing the same thing. They did very well. Uh, at the Trafford Centre in Manchester, uh, there's something called an upside-down house. I've not been in, but I've, I've seen, seen pictures. If you're wondering what an upside-down house is, uh, well, it's, it's what it says on the tin, really. It's, it's an upside-down house. It's a house that's been turned upside-down. All the fixtures and fittings have been... Uh, fixed in place. Uh, when you walk in, all of the, the kitchen units, the toilet, the bath is all stuck to the, si- to the ceiling above your head. The thing is, when you see uh, pictures of people uh, in an upside-down house, it looks like uh, the people are the ones that are upside-down. It looks like they're hanging uh, from the ceiling, and it plays uh, tricks with your mind. But the re- reality is it's the house that's upside-down, and it's the people that are standing the right way up. Why, are we, uh, why am I talking about upside-down houses as we think about the Sermon on the Mount? Well, last week, didn't we, we, we began to look at this Sermon on the Mount, and I said there was two words that sum up this sermon, uh, a Christian counterculture. And in many ways, uh, when we look at this sermon and some of Jesus' words, particularly these Beatitudes, these blessed statements that he describes, they seem upside down. Think about what we, we looked at last week. Jesus uh, said, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. He said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we noted last week that it doesn't really sound like blessing, does it? Poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hunger and thirsting for righteousness. That's not how the world views the good life. These blessings look upside down. But the reality is, it's, is that the wisdom of this world that's upside down. These blessings and this life that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount is actually uh, life the right way up. This is truly uh, the good life. Again, last week, uh, when we looked at these, we noted that the first beatitude and the the last beatitude, they end the same way. So verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These blessed statements, these beatitudes, they describe the person who belongs to to the kingdom of God. Now, they describe uh, the Christian. They describe the good life. And this life is actually life lived the right way up. 
someone's described the Sermon on the Mount like this. The Sermon on the Mount is a summons to live in the present in a way that makes sense in God's promised future. Because the future has already arrived in the person of Jesus. Today, uh, we're going to focus on the last four, the second four uh, Beatitudes. Before we, we look there at verse 7, I just want to uh, point out a couple of things about these Beatitudes. First of all, they're not a to-do list. So we read, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. And we think this is a to-do list. Be merciful, be peacemakers. But this isn't a to-do list. It's a description of, of what someone is, not what they do. And as I said, it's, it's, a, it's a description of the virtues of someone possesses who belongs to God's kingdom. At home, uh, sometimes with the children, we like to get the Play-Doh out. Uh, and along with the Play-Doh, we've got some Play-Doh molds. Uh, different molds, different shapes, some are different foods, some are stars and hearts and all sorts of things. But what you do is you take the Play-Doh and you, you press it into the mold. And the Play-Doh takes the shape of the mold. These uh, virtues describe someone whose life has been molded around the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone whose life has been shaped by the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Around the truth that Jesus is king and he's the only one who can save. So they're not a to-do list. The second thing about these Beatitudes is that they all belong together. They, they come as a whole this isn't describing different people who receive different blessings. So the merciful uh, receive mercy. The peacemakers are called sons of God. These are not a description of lots of different people. These all belong together. As I said, they describe the person who belongs to the kingdom of God and they describe all the blessings of what it means to belong to the kingdom of God, to be a Christian. So the blessings are, that, uh, are comfort, inherit the earth, shall be satisfied, shall receive mercy, shall see God, shall be called sons of God. Every Christian is to bear all of these virtues, and increasingly so as they follow Jesus. So let's look uh, more closely at these uh, second four. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? Uh, the word mercy embraces both forgiveness of the guilty and compassion for the, for the needy and suffering. Perhaps the best example of mercy that we see in the Bible is one of the most famous short stories ever told, the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure nearly all of you here will, will know that story. Samaritan's traveling on a road. He meets another traveler uh, who's been robbed and stripped and beaten and, and left for dead. The Samaritan, even though naturally he has nothing in common with the man, he comes, he cares for his wounds. He puts him on his horse. He takes him to an inn and he pays for him to be cared for. And at the end, the comment that Jesus makes or the, or the man who Jesus is speaking to makes is that it's the Samaritan who shows mercy. And Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Does Jesus mean by this statement that it's only those who 
who show mercy will receive mercy. That we'll only receive God's mercy if we ourselves show mercy. Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, yes, yes, it is. Only the merciful will receive mercy. The difficulty we have here is we read into this statement a kind of causal link. Because we show mercy, God will show mercy to us, as though our acts of mercy earn God's mercy. But that's not what this uh, verse is, is saying. Mercy that you earn is no mercy at all, is it? What's going on here? Last week, uh, we noted that these blessings are all described in the future tense. So the merciful shall receive mercy, future tense. And the mercy that's envisioned here is, is mercy on the last day, when we all stand before God in the judgment, as we all will. The merciful can look forward to mercy on the last day. Why is that? Well, with the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, something of that future last day mercy has already broken into the present. So those who belong to Jesus experience something of that future last day mercy now. And it's the mercy, as, as we look at Jesus and we see that he is merciful and gracious, that changes us. It's, it's that present display of mercy that changes us and makes us act mercifully now. Later on in, in, the, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells another parable, a parable about uh, the unforgiving debtor or the unmerciful debtor. In this parable, there's a man who, who owns a great debt, a debt he could, he could never, ever pay. He goes to his master and he begs for mercy. And the master, well, shows him mercy. He clears him of his debt and sends him on his way. This servant, immediately after leaving his master's office, goes out and meets a fellow servant who, owe, uh, who owes him you know, pocket change, a small amount. He hauls this man over the coals and demands that he pays his debt. And the man begs for mercy, I can't pay. What does the servant do? He has the man hauled off to prison until he can pay his debt. The man who's just been forgiven uh, a great debt will not forgive a small debt. He showed no mercy. What does the master do? The master takes the man and throws him into prison. See, the, the, the great demonstration of the master's mercy left no impression on him. It made no mark on his life. It, it didn't mold him. And so he couldn't look forward to mercy at the last day. And Jesus is saying here, when he says, blessed are the mercif merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He's saying the one who truly belongs to the kingdom of God recognizes just how much they have been forgiven. <laughs> they recognize how much mercy God has shown to them. And so they have no problem extending mercy to others. They love much because they recognize they've been forgiven much. Showing mercy uh, involves costly service, doesn't it? It involves going out your way to, to lift someone else up. One writer describes it like this. Mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore the dignity 
to restore dignity to someone's life that has been broken by sin, whether their own or somebody else's. That's mercy, and that's what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Blessed are the merciful. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does Jesus mean when he, he says, blessed are the pure in heart? The heart doesn't refer to our kind of organ in our chest that pumps blood around our body. When Jesus speaks about the heart, he speaks of the core of who we are, that the center of our desires, our deepest wants. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart is someone who is clean from the inside out. Not just a kind of outward external morality or, or right living. Someone who's clean on, on the inside. There's also another aspect to being pu pure in heart. The pure heart is the undivided heart or the unmixed heart. A heart that is wholly devoted to God. In the Psalms, we read this. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. See, the pure in heart describes someone who is undivided in their loyalties. And the promise for the pure in heart is that they will see God. See him with their eyes, stand before him face to face. And again, for the Christian, something of this uh, future hope, seeing God face to face, has already broken into the present. John in his gospel writes, no one has ever seen God. In fact, no one's seen God. But he says, the only God who is at the Father's side, the Lord Jesus, he has made him known. On the night before he died, Jesus was in the upper room talking with his disciples. And Thomas said to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. How, what does Jesus reply? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. As we open our Bibles and as we uh, learn about Jesus, as we see him with the eyes of faith, we truly see God. And it's our vision of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. That's what purifies our hearts. It says we see that at the cross, he, he's died for us to make us clean. We're made pure. It's as we uh, see his majesty that our hearts are secured and taken captive in devotion to him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Verse, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers. The prophet Isaiah describes Jesus as the, the prince of peace. The scriptures bear witness uh, to God that he is the God of peace. Making peace is, is God's work. Often these beatitudes get kind of wrestled out of their, their context. Jesus isn't here talking about a general peace, kind of conflict resolution. He's not talking about peace uh, within families or peace between warring nations. He's not primarily talking about peace on a horizontal level. 
He's talking about peace on a, a vertical level, peace between God and man, peace between God and, and people. That's the main plot line in the Bible when it comes to making peace. Peace on a horizontal level between, between us flows out from that peace with God. Paul the Apostle writes about this peace that God makes. He writes, For in him, that's Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven or under the earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's how peace is made. That's how God makes peace through Jesus' blood on the cross. Making peace is about reconciliation with God. And it's only as we experience that vertical peace that we enjoy peace with, with one another. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Can you follow what Jesus is, is saying there? On the last day, there's going to be a whole group of people who are going to be revealed to be the children of God. Sons of God. Before all creation. And those people who are revealed on the last day as sons of God are those who, who in the present bear the family likeness. They are peacemakers. Remember, peacemaking is not just about settling disputes. Peacemaking is primarily about the gospel, about Jesus' blood. Of course, uh, Christians should bring a calm when tempers are flaring and the sparks are flying. They shouldn't be adding fuel to the fire. <laughs> but primarily, peacemaking is about sharing the gospel. It's about helping people know where they can have peace with, with God. That's where real peace is found. That's the first three Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Before we look at that final uh, blessed statement, maybe just uh, look at where we've, we've come from over the last couple of weeks. I don't know, when I'm out walking on the hills, it's nice to stop. And when you stop, what you do, you turn around and you look back at, at the, the, the kind of the path that you've traveled. And looking back uh, over these first seven Beatitudes, we can uh, see uh, the first four Beatitudes that we looked at last week describe the kind of person who believes the gospel. Someone who's poor in spirit, who knows that when it comes to being right with God, they bring nothing to the table, spiritually bankrupt. People who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. People who are meek, who see themselves not in relation to others and compare, but see themselves in relation to God. And people who mourn over their failings and sins. Those kind of people are the people who believe the gospel. And these second four Beatitudes describe people who reflect the gospel. They reflect Jesus, his purity, his desire for peace, his, his mercy. And such a person, Jesus says, is, is blessed. They enjoy the, the good life. And as a church, that's what we're, we're called to be. We're called to be a, a representation of uh, the kingdom of heaven in this present world. 
if you travel around the world and go to any of the famous capital cities, you'll find in each famous capital city a British embassy. Those, those embassies are kind of a little outpost of the United Kingdom on foreign soil, governed by our, our laws, speaking the English language, maybe even having, I don't know, fish and chips and roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. They're an outpost of the United Kingdom. And as a church, we're called to be an, an outpost of God's heavenly kingdom, reflecting heavenly values and virtues. As a church, we're to be notable for our mercy. And people fall, gently picking them up. Not quick to judge, not spiritually superior. We're called uh, to be noticed for our purity of heart, not a kind of minimalistic outward morality, but a deep desire from the inside out to, to be right and to, to do what's right wholly devoted to Jesus, and we're to live in peace together. We're to be peacemakers, holding out the, the gospel of peace uh, and living in peace with, with one another. We should prioritize the peace of our church. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, the peace, harmony, and well-being of a fellowship must have pri priority. As peacemakers, we will submit our wills, our positions, our natural desires and preferences to the shalom, the peace of our, our fellowship. Look around, we're, we're all very different. <laughs> different ages and stages of life, different preferences, different desires, different likes. We're to put those things aside in the name of peace, peace that's been won for us at the cross. In this world, a, a church that lives according to the kingdom will, will be noticed. <laughs> Can't help but notice. It will look upside down. A church that lives according to what Jesus says. Let's look at this uh, final blessed statement. This is perhaps the most uh, uncomfortable, I think. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For many uh, Christians throughout the world today, Jesus' words are their present reality. Today, people will die because they follow Jesus. People will be beaten because they follow Jesus. People will be in prison because they follow Jesus. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The description of the good life, how upside down is that to our world's thinking? He expands further in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus expects the norm to be persecution, miscarriages of justice, false accusations and slanders. That's the norm he, for his people. And throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, that has been the norm. 
the, the, the church's experience in the UK in recent decades has been the exception, really. We live uh, in a country where many of our laws are largely built on Christian principles, and so defending the Christian faith has been uh, fairly acceptable. But we, we shouldn't expect that. That's not the expectation, and it certainly won't last. The expectation is persecution, false accusations, and slander. I was thinking about this verse this week, and I, I read an article online. The article was reminding uh, Christians that they live in exile. You know that song, this world is not our home, we're just a passing through. Our treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. There's a commentary on that song, and, and the, the writer wrote this. The reality of our exile has been clouded and obscured by the size and legal protection of the church in most of the Western world. But this world is not actually our home. We're not supposed to settle down here. We're not supposed to expect the church to be large, influential, and respected. Christians are increasingly going to be seen as different and not in a good way. We're increasingly going to have to choose between obedience and comfort. The next decades will not bring apathy to the gospel. They will bring antagonism to the gospel. And that's okay. After all, that has been the reality for most of God's people throughout history. These, uh, this final beatitude helps us to refocus, doesn't it? For a while, the church has maybe been ignored and considered irrelevant. But how should we respond when we're no longer in ignored, but we're considered the bad guys? When some of what we teach is considered sinister and dangerous? What does Jesus say? Verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. See, there's coming a day of uh, future vindication. To be persecuted and falsely accused doesn't seem like the blessed life, but it is because there's a day of, of future vindication, a day of great reward. We're nearly through, uh, but the application of these verses is really the same application that we made last week. It's just to remind us that this that Jesus describes is the blessed life. Every, every day we're fed another version of the good life. We're told that the good life is about uh, comfort and ease, about being well-liked, about putting yourself first, about being uh, self-reliant and self-dependent. And we need to hear this again. No, this is the good life. This is uh, the blessed life. This is the life that we're to pursue. How do we know this is the good life, the blessed life? Well, one, Jesus tell, tells us that. But Jesus also proves it to us, doesn't he? Jesus is the, the truly blessed man. He's the one that lived this blessed life more than anyone else. Poor in spirit. What does Paul say of Jesus? Even though he was rich, for our sake, he became poor. Isaiah describes Jesus as a, a mourner, a man of sorrows and acquainted with, with grief. 
meek. Well, Jesus' heart is gentle and lowly. Hungry and thirsty for righteousness, it was Jesus' food to do the, the good will of his Father. Jesus is the, the true good Samaritan, isn't he? Who shows more mercy than anyone else has ever shown. He is the pure one who's without sin, unwavering devotion to the Father. Jesus is the, the peacemaker, <laughs> the one who died, who shed his blood to bring peace to us and to this world. And Jesus was un insulted, unjustly accused, whipped, uh, beaten, hung on a cross, only because he always did what was, was right. And for Jesus, there was that day of vindication, wasn't there? Laid in a tomb, three days later, risen again, ascended to the Father, and he now has the name which is above every name. He has all authority. He's the king. This truly is uh, the blessed life. We're going to think more about this as a church over the next week in our home.